Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Stellenbosch Center for Chinese Studies uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, we've got three topics as always. Every week, we kind of take a look at some of the key stories that are happening in the China-Africa space, kind of put a little bit of analysis, and also kind of talk a little bit about the discussion that's going on over on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/China-Africa-Project. We have actually a trivia quiz, and Kobus, I'm going to see if you can actually, if you know the answer. I don't know the answer, so uh, so we'll <laughs> see. Well, maybe we'll go. We'll both post our uh, our, our answers on on that trivia question, which I'll bring up later in the show. Okay, our three topics today, we're going to talk about uh, Sudan is once again back in the news. Oil, as of today, in fact, our taping is on Sunday. Uh, uh, Oil is now flowing again, apparently, out of Sudan, which is a major accomplishment considering the tensions that have been there for the past year. Uh, China's top Africa diplomat, Zhong Jianhua, is on the scene and brokering a deal. We'll talk about that and what it means. Also, there's been uh, a lot of media coverage, particularly on Weibo, uh, the Chinese Twitter, uh, about the death of uh, U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens in uh, in Libya. And so we're going to talk about kind of the Chinese reaction and not only this, this Weibo angle on the story, which was filled with massive amounts of misinformation, but also the broader Chinese coverage uh, of the world in Africa in specific and, and kind of the problems that it's had. And we're going to highlight one particular piece of journalism from uh, South African journalist Richard Poplock, uh, who just did a great piece on CCTV, so we'll get into that. And finally, speaking of great journalism, we're really going to highlight um, just an amazing piece by Ed Cropley and uh, Michael Martina, uh, who work for Reuters and wrote a, a you know an excellent story on uh, Malawi and the anti the growing anti Chinese sentiment that is brewing there. So we'll get into that. Uh, let's start Cobus right off the top with. Uh, with, with, with Sudan, and uh, let me just kind of bring people up to speed before I get your take on it. Uh, South Sudan is the kind of the world's newest country. It broke away from Sudan after a very, very long civil war, very, very bloody, uh, but it did in fact break away. Now, what's important to note before we get into our discussion of the Chinese role here is the fact that 75% of, of Sudan's, of the, the combined Sudan's oil reserves are actually in the south. This borderline kind of then divides the two, but the South Sudanese can't do anything with the oil because all of the processing uh, and refining is done in the north. And so the tension started to devolve between the two sides, and all of that oil production stopped. So a massive diplomatic um, process or just you know engagement occurred between the Americans, the Chinese, and the Sudanese parties. Uh, they were been negotiating in Addis Ababa in nearby Ethiopia, and today we have a breakthrough. So, Kobus, tell us a little bit about what today, what happened today, and why it's significant. Well, what what came out today is, is a report that um, the China has again started importing oil from Sudan. Now, um, I think one has to keep in mind that the oil that they're importing, as far as I understand, comes from reserves that were that were held by the China National Petroleum Corporation, which is the big, uh, the big Chinese uh, multinational that uh, that runs a lot of um, of oil exploration, both in South Sudan and in Sudan. Um, and um, so, this doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it, this is newly pumped oil. It seems to have been reserve oil, but at least some kind of trade in oil is, is happening. Meanwhile, um, Dong Jinhua is saying that uh, the oil will start pumping. Actually, new oil will start pumping in November. Um, and I was wondering whether he was surprised by him 
him actually putting a date on that. I was surprised on that, and I think it, it okay, so one way could look at this is the fact that it's just brash optimism, uh, you know, that he's actually so confident that he's going to reach a deal that he's willing to put a date on it, um, or it's the fact that the Chinese, you know, are really doing an effective job in their first major international mediation effort. Uh, Zhong Jianhua is probably one of the world's most experienced diplomats. He, this guy knows Africa extraordinarily well. He's got the trust of both parties here in terms of the uh, South, South Sudanese and the Sudanese. And so his ability to bring them back now, uh, back to the table, is, is really quite important. But we cannot give all of the credit to Zhong Jianhua or the Chinese. Um, one of the things that uh, this, uh, in, the, in the coverage the Reuters article pointed out was the fact that Zhong said he could not have done this without the United States. And I think this is something very interesting because we've talked about on the show for several months now about this growing competition in Africa, this growing, this rhetoric, you know, particularly when Hillary Clinton goes and starts warning African leaders about cozying up to, you know, non-democratic powers. And you get this sense of real animosity or a growing animosity between the Chinese in the West and the Americans in Africa. And so it was very surprising to me to see that the Chinese and the Americans have been working very close together on Sudan. Did that, uh, was that a surprise to you? Yeah, it was actually, particularly because the you know the rhetoric between the two have really been ratcheted up in the last while. You know, as we as we'll talk again a little bit uh, later. Uh, you know, kind of particularly in relation to Libya, you know, kind of the rhetoric is, is quite kind of uh, kind of pointed. You know, um, so yeah, it was very interesting for me. Obviously, um, you know, it. it you know, it, it points to where, you know, that, that it's possible for them to work together when they have both have kind of high stakes, you know, kind of on the table. Um, and But I, it's, it's also interesting because, you know, kind of China was far and away Sudan's biggest oil customer. You know, kind of before the conflict, China was in, was um, buying 74% of, of Sudan's total oil output. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting that the Americans actually, you know, kind of got involved and actually help, helped. You know, kind of it, it, it's it's encouraging, I guess. Yeah. So a couple more statistics on Sudanese oil in China. Uh, Ch- uh, Sudan is, seven, is the seventh largest crude supplier uh, for the Chinese last year, uh, just behind in Africa, Angola. Uh, and then also the fact that uh, they're exporting about 1.5 million tons or about 45,000 barrels per day. So that's the import from Sudan. So a very important source for oil. Uh, a controversial point, though, with the West, obviously, because of China's role in supporting uh, the Khartoum government. Uh, and, uh, and and so that's a kind of brought up a lot of tensions. But I just want to get back to what you talked about earlier in terms of the U.S. and the Chinese, where they have common interests. And another story that crossed uh, that crossed the wires this, this week was the fact that the U.S. and the Chinese navies successfully completed one of their first naval operations uh, on combating anti-piracy. So here we are in the same week having two rather groundbreaking and important you know uh, events between the United States and China one on a diplomatic level and the other in the military context so i think what it does is it shows you the complexity of us china relations and it simply cannot be boiled down to good or bad um this is extraordinarily complex and this is a level of nuance that is lost in the coverage both in the united states and in china about the other so in some ways our ability to talk about these successful points where the two countries came together um, is quite rare in the media and i think it's it is as you pointed out when they have common interests there is an ability to actually get something done so that gives a little bit of hope for them cooperating on other issues as well 
Yeah, absolutely. I, one, one thing I was wondering about, um, and I'd actually like to ask your opinion about as well, is that, um, that you know, the... Um, the one thing that, that Jong said that he was that he felt that South South um, Sudanese officials had not fully understand understood the impact of sh- shutting down oil production on their economy, um, which you know considering that South Sudan was a country that was ninety eight percent dependent on oil, kind of kind of made you know kind of it seemed yeah I don't know well, what do you think Jong was saying there I mean like we were saying that this is going to have a terrible effect on their like months ago. Yeah. So how could they not have realized that? Well, I think there was, you know, there was a lot of talk several months ago about building that that pipeline through Kenya. Uh, and so, and I think that was really their big hope was to build an overland pipeline to basically circumvent the the dependency that they've got on, on you know, Sudan proper. And, and then when that pipeline has run into an enormous number of problems uh, in terms of cost and the ability and the diplomatic challenges of getting it done, uh, that may have led them back to the negotiating table because that they lost their leverage. Um, also, I think that the construction of that pipeline would have really jeopardized uh, Sudan proper as well. And so I think the Sudanese said, if you build that pipeline, we're going to kick your ass. Um, because at that point, when if South Sudan takes all of its oil, exports it over land through Kenya and uh, and in points east, then it doesn't need North Sudanese or the north to basically process the oil. And so that's all the revenue lost. And that uh, that could I think so. My guess is those those pieces on the chessboard had something to do with it. And when the the dream of building that pipeline quickly uh, went up in smoke, then uh, then 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 that forced them back to the table. That's yeah, just my yeah, no, amateur that's... armchair theory, so I have no basis in actually any fact to, to prove that. What was also interesting for me this week is that in the same week as all of this was happening, um, Omar al-Bashir was unveiling um, Sudan's, uh, you know, kind of um, a, a new oil, gold, a, a new gold refining plant, you know, so we're moving from black gold to actual gold. And, um, you know, and, and this is supposed to be one of Africa's biggest gold largest gold refining plants um and that it's they're planning to um to refine gold from a whole bunch of other other countries in the region um did, did you was it, you know kind of did you how did this strike you do, you know kind of does, does it seem like they're trying to kind of make their way to to kind of to, to broaden their economy um i assume that that's what they're trying to do to try and get out of the kind of this kind of oil problem i think there's two things when i read that story that that crossed my mind one was the fact that they need to diversify their portfolio uh clearly being dependent exclusively not only on just oil but chinese exported oil uh is is a, is a problem and and i think that the whole discussion about the pipeline and the dependency on the south kind of illustrates the fact that they really need to find other ways to make money. So, but, and this is what's interesting as well, gold is a much easier product to launder than oil. Uh, and we've seen this in the Eastern DRC where gold and diamonds are being, you know, processed through Uganda and, and, and other countries. Uh, and then the warlords and, and other nefarious characters have been profiting handsomely off of this. So this is this might be another way uh, to, to, to generate money and to circumvent the somewhat suffocating United Nations sanctions that are that have been opposed on Sudan. So so that that was the other thing that crossed my mind. And then again, you know, ultimately not being dependent on the Chinese. Now, ironically, China is one of the largest gold consumers in the world, if not the largest, if I recall. So in some ways, they will still remain connected to China. And those high gold prices are very much dependent in, in, in part on, uh, on China's continued consumption of gold. 
Yeah, yeah. I think another, you know, kind of bigger issue that it also brings up is that the other, you know, Africa's other big um, gold refinery is in South Africa. Um, and that might, it might, you know, it might be one of the... Uh, one of many kind of signs that the economic center of, of Africa might be moving to East Africa and away from South Africa in the future. But didn't we, there wasn't there a story a couple of weeks ago about how one of China's largest gold uh, processing companies was actually making a big buy for, uh, for, for an African company? I forget if that, uh, does that ring a bell? I remember vaguely hearing about that, but I'd have have to look it up again. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, but so I think it's one sector to watch in terms of the Chinese coming into into that space in Africa to get into gold. Gold, of course, is still at, you know, record, record highs. I remember when gold was at $400 an ounce and everybody said, how high can this thing go? And of course, we're north of $1,000 an ounce now. So there's some real profit reasons for why the Sudanese may want to go into that. So um, just let's close on this subject here for Sudan. Uh, the next milestone is in the month of November, which, of course, is not that far away. Uh, to let's see if Zhong Jianhua's prediction that oil will begin flowing from Sudan um, or South Sudan uh, in the month of November, we will then come back to this topic at that time just to see, kind of to kind of gauge again the effectiveness of of Chinese diplomacy. I mean, getting the oil going is the best manifestation. Of the of whether or not the Chinese and the Americans are successful in bringing this uh, these parties back to the table, so we will come back on that. Let's move on to another topic now in terms of kind of China's perceptions of Africa, and there were a number of different stories that kind of got you know we can string together to to talk about how the 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 average Chinese media consumer kind of sees the continent. And, uh, and this really came to fore on, you know, on Weibo. Now, Weibo, if you're not familiar with it, it is this microblogging service like Twitter. And uh, it erupted uh, in, the, in the aftermath of the death of Christopher Stevens, the U.S. ambassador who was killed in Benghazi by militias. And just a torrent of, of incorrect and rather nationalistic and rather virulent information was circulating on Weibo. What was your reading of this story and the trend that you saw out of Weibo on the Christopher Stevens story in, uh, from Libya? Yeah, no, this was very interesting. You know, the a very good article that we found about it was uh, was on the Atlantic site, um, and uh, you know, the it. it happened around a, a picture that was misidentified as being a picture of, of Christopher, Christopher Stevens kind of, um, you know, sitting next to the, what what might have been the corpse of Muammar Gaddafi and seemingly giving a, a thumbs up. But what was actually, what it turned out to, to probably be was a, a journalist from the Daily Mail, um, you know, basically sitting there, he wasn't particularly looking particularly gleeful, but, you know, that just was the, you know, the, the gesture his hand was in at that moment, when the moment when the picture was taken. But on Weibo, this kind of exploded into first assumptions that this was Christopher Stevens actually sitting next to the corpse of Muammar Gaddafi. Secondly, that he was you know, gleefully giving the thumbs up and then, you know, kind of, and then kind of making the leaps saying that he was then later killed for, you know, kind of for his insults to Islam and, the, you know, America's general kind of like, uh, you know, involvement in Libya. So, you know, kind of it just it just revealed that, uh, you know, this incredible kind of well of, of anti-American sentiment on Weibo in the first place. And, uh, you know, Weibo just kind of ran with this, you know, it just got yeah. kind of forwarded thousands of times. Well, and it, it was kind of based, okay, so the journalist was Andrew Malone, 
uh, who is who of course works for uh, I think you said the Daily Mail. Is that correct? Um, as far as I'm and so and and basically the, that that picture of him kind of kneeling over Gaddafi's corpse or what is alleged to be Gaddafi's corpse. Uh, with his thumb, you know, in a thumbs up, but it's not really, again, as you said, a gleeful thumbs up, uh, was captioned on Weibo with the saying, there's an old African saying, those who haven't made it to the other shore should not laugh at those who have already drowned, and kind of implying that, you know, the American ambassador got his just desserts uh, for what he did. Now, that said, also, what was very interesting was that almost immediately after uh, the, 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 the death was announced or his killing was announced. Uh, what was so interesting was the, a man who was, self, who was self-identified as the editor-in-chief of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference Journal, so that's a pretty high-level uh, journal, was, uh, he said, quote, I was just enjoying the news about the attack on the U.S. ambassador to Libya. Now, what this all feeds into is this kind of narrative in China of, of American global hegemony, and, and there's a lot of resentment about that the, the role that America plays in the world, and there's this fear that and whether it's justified or not i'm not going to cast any 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 opinion on but that the united states is seeking to contain china the united states is seeking to kind of uh to separate and divide china from taiwan the united states is obviously allied with japan and right now i think another important context that that you can obviously speak on with your background in, in japanese affairs is the incredible heightened nationalism that we're seeing in china right now over the uh, disputed islands, the Diaoyu Islands or the Sinkaku Islands. Again, I, I, you and I aren't going to take a position on the island dispute. Um, but at the same time, this is the context with which it's coming in. So there's a lot of anti-foreigner sentiment coming out of China, particularly towards the United States and Japan. And these perceptions of Africa are, are kind of getting folded into that. Yes, it was it was startling for me to see this kind of wildfire literally kind of jumping the fence right into the Japanese island dispute. You know, kind of one one commenta- commentator was saying that he hoped um, there would be more attacks against other you know other American officials and also against Japanese officials. You know, kind of so they are kind of conflating the two. You know, um, now obviously, I mean, you know, someone you know, I recently read an article where someone was looking at the Japanese um, comment site Nichanaru. Which is you know, which is basically a little bit like 4chan in in um, you know in America. Which is a um, for, let's know, just is, explain 4chan, which is a very geeky kind of developer site that is a mixture of a geeks and kind of a, a frat house and raunchy. There's a yes. Does that, yeah. and also you know kind of um, it's it's another kind of hive mind you know that tends to kind of explode with with controversy every now and then. Um, and uh, you know and, and um, so this this American journalist I think on Slate was uh, reading Nietzsche to look at you know Japanese reactions towards the, the Chinese. Um, and a commentator was asking whether it's really legitimate to take you know, to take a, a group like 4chan or like Nichanru as, as representative of what people are thinking. Um, and I think you can, on the one hand, ask the same thing about Weibo. On the other hand, you know, like it, it does open a door. It does show you, it does give you a glimpse. I mean, you don't necessarily need to think it's what everyone's thinking, but it's, it's what some people are thinking. Well, you know, so... Yeah, that's interesting. It's, and and it's that, that's the important point, though, that I think you're making is to make sure that whenever we talk about Weibo, that we put it in a proper context. Uh, Weibo, of course, only reflects the views of people of connections to the Internet. 
um, which is not everybody in China. Weibo seems to magnify a much more nationalistic kind of sentiment in part. And that's the same not only in China, but I think pretty much anywhere that the web does magnify uh, extremism rather than moderation. I mean, you, you look at YouTube comments or you look on Facebook and it's generally not the people who are kind of well-balanced and, and thoughtful in their consideration that get the attention. It's the more flamboyant and inflammatory comments that do. Uh, but you brought up another interesting point in, in kind of the emails that we were passing back and forth in preparation for the show today about an op-ed that came in uh, in the China Daily. Now, again, I always assume that anything that appears in the China Daily is never by accident. Um, and so this was done by, let me see if it's the author, is a senior editor with the China Daily. He appears to be a, a man of South Asian descent, uh, Ope Rana. Uh, that's O-P is his first name, R-A-N-A is his last name. And he writes a, a, an, an opinion piece called Libya Lessons for Politically Correct U.S. And basically he goes on to to kind of really bash the Americans for their Middle East policy, kind of calling the entire American Middle East agenda a failure. Uh, you know, and this is, again, part of the narrative we heard uh, two weeks ago when we first talked about this. And you brought up the issue, the fact that, um, you know, the really maybe the Chinese are using this as an opportunity to 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 kind of push the Americans aside in the Middle East as their interests grow. And let me just get your reaction to the last statement that he wrote. Will the tragic killing of Stevens in Benghazi make the U.S. realize how faulty its self-righteous policy is? Um, so I think that's a very strongly worded uh, op-ed piece coming from, you know, the China Daily, but a, a, a foreigner, no less, in the China Daily. Um, so I just, you know, that I'd love to kind of hear what you think on that one. Yeah, this was very odd for me. Um, the, um, you know, and, and also the, the choice of words, of, you know, saying, you know, the policy is self-righteous is, is different than saying the policy is a failure or saying the policy is arrogant or all of the other kind of adjectives you could use. You know, self-righteous implies that they're trying to impose you know, a moral agenda on the Middle East, you know. Um, so it seems to me to connect to a kind of a, you know, a, a general kind of anti-sanctions discourse. Um, don't impose your ideas on us kind of discourse that, that is obviously strong in the in the Chinese press. Um, I don't know if you read it in the same way. I, I, I think I did. But I what I found surprising, though, also was the fact that they, uh, and, and this is something in the West uh, people do not understand, because in the West, the basically the military uh, it wasn't it was an assault attack the uh, attack on Libya you know ju- you know as, as provisioned in United Nations resolution 1973 is largely considered a success uh, here in the for the US election the people you know Obama's running on the fact that he was the one who who helped kind of lead that initiative in France it's considered a, a success and yet in in this editorial and it, it, it highlights the Chinese position that 1973 was really a failure. And to go one step further, he points out the fact that, you know, he validates Russian and Chinese opposition to any military intervention in Syria um, is worthwhile. So that was interesting to me as well, because we have not heard such a public expression of the Chinese view on Libya and also in terms of their view on not uh, sponsoring military intervention in Syria, which is something that has been somewhat of a political issue both in the U.S. and in Europe. So that articulation, I thought, was very interesting as well. So I don't know if this guy represents official Chinese thinking or if he is just part of 
Um, you know, they they throw these trial balloons out there, and uh, and the fact that he's not Chinese, I was also very intrigued by that. Do you think there's any significance to that? The fact that he was a foreigner, or does does the China Daily, in your opinion, just you know they don't care? You know, I would I would be surprised if they don't care. You know, um, I mean, you know, racially, China is such a homogenous country that that you know, it, you know, again, we we reading tea leaves from the outside, so we we can't be sure. But I mean, I would be surprised if it's just just happened to be you know kind of you know kind of without any kind of um, significance. Um, it, it seems like it you know kind of. It, it, one way might, in one way, it would work would be as a kind of a legitimate, you know, kind of legitimizing kind of strategy. You know, kind of that that he would be counting as, you know, someone who's speaking more for the Muslim world than a Chinese speaker would, maybe. Yeah, I'm maybe. Sure. But um, but I think that it's important. Again, we're we'll close this segment on the same way we closed the first segment by. Uh, by talking about the importance of context. Uh, just as in Weibo, you know, the context is very important. We are in the middle of both of these two countries in a political transition. Obviously, the United States in the midst of its election season. Uh, certainly, anti-China rhetoric is now on the rise in the United States. Uh, you know, both Obama and Romney going after China on trade. Um, and so I think that the also in China, their transition to Xi Jinping um, and that it, it might help certain factions inside the government to push the Americans and or to respond to American um, kind of heightened uh, attacks on China. And, and not to mention the fact, that, as we talked about earlier, the the island dispute and the role the United States is playing in that. So it might be just easy to to pull the tail of the tiger. So just that, I think that context is important that strange things are said and happen in these periods of political transition in both countries. Any final thoughts on this yeah, subject? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just just finally, um, you know, I was reading a, a kind of op-ed on a site called truthdig.com, um, and um, they were making the point that, uh, that, you know, in case people in North Africa wanted to... to Pay more attention to China's history with with Islam. Obviously, you know the China has its own problems in Xinjiang. You know, and um, and, and the winds could could turn. You know, the winds could change, and, and China could face its own kind of international protests um, relating to its treatment of of indigenous you know kind of Muslims in Xinjiang. And I mean that we should probably keep an eye on that. Yeah, well, let's. I mean, China has been uh, you, you know under a lot of criticism for many years for its aggressive treatment of of, of the Muslim population in Western China and Xinjiang. So, uh, so that's something to obviously follow. But I forgot to mention one very important article before we move on to our final segment. Uh, this is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, an article by Richard Poplack uh, from the South Africa's Daily Maverick. What is the Daily Maverick? Is it a, is it a reputable paper? It's a it's a web it's a website. It's, a you know, website, so it's, okay. it's not so much um, it's not so much a, a newspaper as it is a, a kind of a, a slate style kind of uh, okay. provocation and discussion and reporting kind of good mixture. Well, he, but they have pretty pretty kind of cool people working for them. It seems that way. And again, I don't know Richard Popluck, but he wrote really one of the best articles that we've seen on uh, the CCTV effect in Africa. This is something we've talked about on the podcast for many months now. Uh, don't really want to go over the question of CCTV per se in Africa because again we've 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 mined that that vein a lot. But one of the things that he points out was the different types of perceptions of the 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 Africans by the Chinese. And I think what's so interesting is that he separates out 
kind of Western racism and Chinese racism. And, and to many people, racism is racism, but the Chinese racism is born of ignorance. That is, they've just never seen a black person. They've never seen an African. They've never come in contact with African culture. Whereas a lot of Western racism towards Africans and other non-whites is rooted in superiority, is rooted in culture, is rooted in Christianity, is rooted in lots of different things beyond just pure, I've never seen anybody like this before. So that was one very, very interesting point. He gets to uh, to Jeremy Goldcorn as well, who's the editor of uh, or the founder of Danwei.org, which is a very credible, wonderful website in China about Chinese media, and talks about the fact that nobody in, in China will we'll watch this product for CCTV. So the big question is, what's the point? Um, and so, and I think this is this is all part of this larger narrative, and that's a word we use a lot on this podcast, but it's this larger narrative that China wants to say and to kind of tell its version of events in Africa. What was your reading of the story? Yeah, I, I love this piece. It was so good. Um, I, you know, one one of the um, one of the points that he was that he was making was that um, obviously. You know, they they build building a, a positive image of of um, Africa in China. Um, you know, justifies the scope of, the, of of Chinese investment in Africa. You know, kind of so so when um, when Chinese people are asking why is the, all of this Chinese money flowing to to Africa and not kind of solving developmental problems within China, then this is you know helps to answer that question. And of course, it also. Um, you know, kind of creates a positive image of Africa, um, you know, kind of for possible other Chinese investors there. So they don't want to have a doom and gloom picture of Africa because they want, you know, they, they want to, to bolster the, the investments they already have with other investments. Um, what was interesting for me was that is his final point saying that in a way, kind of the CCTV's vision of Africa might actually be nicer than Africa itself, which <laughs> I found interesting. You can't say that about the Western media. No, certainly. I mean, the Western media still is burdened down by, you know, a, a, a stereotypical outlook that that will not change for quite some time. I mean, I remember from my time at Radio France International and France 24 in Paris, that their view and their kind of perception of Africa is still deeply, deeply rooted in the 20th century and the way they're looking at it. Certainly Al Jazeera has a very different view, and he pointed that out in this article. Uh, and he also pointed out one of the first foreign critics of, of CCTV Africa, uh, and he pointed out that there's actually some good content and some good programming on the network, which is something that you and I have been very skeptical, uh, you know, talking about the fact that you know, the Chinese may have built a beautiful set in Nairobi and a beautiful studio and hired a bunch of journalists, but at the end of the day, you know, Chinese television has never been one that's been very well compelling. Um, they're really good at producing crappy television. And so they're working with a some outside production firms, and one is called Fireworks Media. Uh, and, uh, you know, Poplock watched this uh, documentary from Fireworks Media and said it was pretty good. So... So there's a little bit of hope there that maybe the Chinese will actually come around to produce some some compelling content. Yeah, yeah, and you know, kind of the fact that they're also focusing on cultural content, uh, you know, kind of opens the door to a kind of more nuanced view of, of African society. Yeah, so there is. So I we definitely encourage you to take a look at uh, at Big Brother is being watched by you, Chinese television in Africa. We're going to go ahead and post this article on our Facebook page. And, of course, our Facebook page is at the uh, facebook.com slash China 
Africa project. Uh, speaking of our Facebook page, we're running a little bit of a trivia contest right here. And so, Kobus, let's see if uh, how, how much you really know about the Chinese in Africa. So, uh, uh, Nothing, I'm guessing. <laughs> name the largest construction project completed by the Chinese in Africa to date. And uh, there's bonus points for its price tag and the year it was completed. I think it's the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, as far as I understand, but I don't know the price tag. Okay, so if you think you know the answer, why don't you go ahead to our Facebook page, once again, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We've got uh, two questions, two uh, two respondents right now. Uh, Brian Shaw Chung, who says the Ethiopian Dam Project at about $2.2 billion. And then Erwin Chen uh, says the Tazara at, a, at uh, 1976, the 1 billion RMB. Not sure how much it is worth at the time. So I think what he's doing is saying in 1976 dollars, if they were reevaluated for today, would have been the most expensive of all time. That's, of course, the Tanzania uh, Zambian Railway. So, uh, so why don't you, uh, if you have an idea, go ahead and post on our Facebook page, and uh, we will. Uh, we'll, we should find a prize or something to give to people for these little yes. contests. So, um, well, let's close out the show on on yet another piece of excellent journalism. And I, I have to admit, Cobus, that this is the first show. Where we've had, where we've praised the journalism, because for the most part we sit here and we criticize the journalism, and usually the Western press, including a lot of the South African press, um, does a just a terrible job at covering the Chinese in Africa. But yet this week there's been two great pieces um, that came out. First of all, coming out of the Daily Maverick, and then also this one from Reuters. Uh, you know, in Africa's warm heart, a cold welcome for Chinese, written by Ed Cropley and Michael Martina. And uh, this really focuses on the Malawi bill that we've talked about for several weeks now that is really starting to crack down on Chinese merchants. Uh, tell us a little bit about the story, Kobus. Well, you know, it, it, um, it connects to the, the, some of the issues that we've talked about before, the law in Malawi um, barring Chinese traders from the rural areas and, uh, you know, kind of um, keeping them only in the four big cities. Um, and then looking at, at that issue from different perspectives, from the perspectives of, of um, Malawian traders, uh, from Malawi, Malawian customers, um, and then also from Chinese companies, um, and kind of lifting out the different kind of issues involved, and also making the point that at the moment, even though the law has been passed, it's not being implemented yet, um, among other reasons, because the Malawians feel hesitant to, to uh, you know, kind of... Um, uh, piss off the Chinese too much. Yeah, well, he made two excellent points, which I think go unmentioned in most other coverage of this. One, he he talked about the benefits to consumers. So there's two sides to this story. On the one hand is the potential displacement and the real displacement of merchants, which of course is what most of the stories focus on. But the other time, he talked about how consumers are benefiting from the importation and the availability of low-cost Chinese goods, where in a particularly in a country like Malawi, which has not had the economic development that we've seen in other African countries, um, incomes have not expanded the same way. So the lower-cost products are definitely benefit to people, um, introducing not only more products at a lower price, but also this question of the quality. And he interviewed a number of people who said that they don't have a problem with the Chinese quality of products. That, too, is something different than we've seen in some other uh, coverage uh, on this story. So I thought that was very, very interesting how he, how he talked about that. Um, the other thing which was so just refreshing in this story 
was how he separated out the official Chinese government position plus the from the, the 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 merchants themselves these are independent contractors who are coming to or independent citizens who are not under the direction of the chinese embassy or the chinese government who are not under the control and he broke apart well this the two writers here broke apart that issue that's a point that uh, that howard french made a couple weeks ago we talked about that and and how the fact is that the chinese and the local governments are going to eventually lose control of this issue um, and I want to ask you just a bottom line question here, because we've now seen, you know, this issue rising up really across the continent. There are warnings in this story that if something is not done, it's going to end badly. So my question to you is, what can be done? That is, do you really believe that countries and communities will forcibly expel or will impose very, very harsh almost apartheid-type laws to restrict the activities of Chinese? How does this get resolved when there's now hundreds of thousands of independent Chinese merchants on the continent? Yeah, I have to say, you know, one of the more alarming parts of the story is just the quotes from the actual Malawian merchants. Um, one guy says, the way it looks now, one day we will have to have a fight with them, them being the Chinese. One day there will be blood, you know, which is quite an Old Testament kind of way of speaking. Um, I think African countries are coming to a choice. They're coming to a crossroads. You know, kind of either you join the world economy and you, um, and with the, with the kind of opening up that, that entails, or you don't. You know, and um, so you know, on the one hand, they want to build the big universities and they want to have the the big developments and the highways and so on that China brings, um, and they want it in order to be more integrated into the economy. But any country that integrates into the economy, also they integrate into the economy, into the world economy, which which means heightened immigration and cross-border trading and, and being, you know, kind of being undercut by international actors. I mean, Walmart recently moved into Southern Africa, you know, um, and South African unions were fighting them tooth and nail for a while, and now they're here. Um, and, you know, kind of they are undercutting South African producers to a certain extent, and South African producers have to have to adapt. Um, so either you have that, and you have a you know an internationalized economy, or you close yourself off. Um, and at some stage, so, you know, African governments are going to have to a make that choice and b communicate that choice to their people. You know, I think that that they, that's there seems to me a, a big gap there. They're not talking to normal Africans, um, you know, about how they should move ahead from a, from an economy where now at the moment traders are selling single cigarettes one at a time to people who can only afford one cigarette to a situation where you're going to be like fighting with South Korean companies and Indian companies and American multinationals and the Chinese. You know, they have to, they have to work that out. No, I, I couldn't agree more. But the question that I have is why, what, why don't African governments, if they're so upset about this, impose some type of immigration restrictions? That is, you know, I can't move to China and just start a business. I have to get a visa that allows me to do that. Is that because, you know, Malawi's immigration service is so, is so weak that these people are coming in? Is it, I mean, where, why can't African governments control this short of, you know, re resorting to some type of Idi Amin style violence? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I would guess one of the reasons would be that, that they just don't have enough personnel, um, that they don't have enough computers to, to uh, you know, to process all of these visas, that, that everything is just not kind of streamlined and, and developed enough for it. You know, kind of Africa still is a country of kind of 
dusty border posts with one guy and, uh, you know, kind of a gate, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of guarding it kind of in, in a little in a little hut you know um i think that, that you still find that you know so and and africa obviously has a, has a long history of africans themselves crossing back and forth across borders um frequently to trade you know so um you know the you know the chinese are only the latest arrivals in in this kind of history that and they they, they are kind of preceded by a bunch of africans you know kind of in south africa mostly um somalians um so you know i, I think in a way, Africa is probably is probably it's a probably a mix of underdevelopment and having had you know kind of a laissez-faire kind of uh, you know a reaction to that kind of thing in the past, and now suddenly you know finding themselves kind of with a train coming down the tunnel. Uh, you know that that's my reading, but uh, yeah, I might be missing something. Yeah, well, there's uh, three major flashpoints to keep your eyes on. Number one, obviously, is Malawi, and whether or not the government implements this law, that's going to be critical. Uh, number two is in Nairobi, where just last week, uh, you know, hundreds, I'm actually not even sure if it's hundreds or thousands, but there was a mass demonstration in the streets of Nairobi against uh, Chinese traders in the retail sector. Uh, and then we've talked about South Africa. In South Africa, there's this growing, uh, you know, and South Africa is a different case because of the racial history and the racial politics that are there. But there is still very much uh, a growing anti-Chinese sentiment that's occurring in certain markets around the country and certain retail kind of clusters. So those are the three flashpoints. But um, we've been looking at coverage now from around the continent, from Senegal to Angola and to other places of, of growing resentment. Namibia is another place to the Chinese coming into the street-level retail business. And I just don't know what can be done. Um, and, you know, the, certainly the Chinese government and the embassies are not, you know, controlling or having any influence in this. I think they just turn the other cheek on this. All they continue to say is they expect Chinese businesses and Chinese people to respect the local laws. Um, as you pointed out, the, the governments themselves may be too weak to enforce anything re resembling uh, zoning or in uh, immigration status. Uh, and then, you know, Cobus, you know, what was it, a month ago or two months ago, Nigeria actually did a raid, uh, arrested dozens of people, and then freed them and released them the next couple of days. So it seems like even when there is a crackdown, um, there isn't a crackdown. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of, uh, I, I don't know whether people are going to get deported and on which grounds, you know, kind of, because if they, if, if kind of viable visa systems aren't in place, place then you know then why would you deport them you don't have a reason to deport them if you don't have a visa to get them you know um the um yeah i, I think i think another issue is that um i think from western perspectives obviously people you know capitalism is so entrenched in western culture that i think people take a kind of a, a baseline comprehension of what capitalism actually means, um, you know, that the, the people would know that and would understand, you know, the ideas of competition and ideas of, of profit and so on. People take that for granted. I think that it's it's probably a mistake to take that for granted in Africa. It's not necessarily as entrenched a way of thinking in Africa as it is in other places. So, you know, kind of some of these traders, you know, simply, simply protest is against, not, not against unfair competition, but against the very fact of competition. Yeah. And, and if some of these traders were saying that 
they people should not be allowed to compete with us in the market and you know any kind of like the person coming from a capitalist background is like why <laughs> you well, know please answer the question why um you know and th that is a difficult question to answer in a way you know kind of enough people aren't actually asking the question and answering the question and it just makes them an easy target the fact that they're you know outsiders and foreigners so therefore it's easy to kind of point at them and to say they're the reason why there's my problem uh, my my point on this is that despite whatever anybody says about you know, the competition that's coming or the frustration that local merchants are facing. Um, I don't think this is going to change. I don't think these Chinese are going to leave. Um, these are not wealthy people. These are people, these are, you know, basically poor peasant, you know, traders themselves. Um, they don't have the ability to go back to China even if they wanted to. So you really, there's really a, a problem here in terms of what actually happened. So, um, so I suspect that like the CCTV story and like the Sudan story, this is definitely going to be one that we come back to uh, in the weeks ahead. But again, just to close up, two excellent pieces uh, of journalism, um, something you have never heard us say on this show. <laughs> so, uh, so we just wanted to kind of bring your attention to that. Usually, we're, again, we're criticizing it. So, um, you know, both of these pieces we, we highlight on our Twitter feed and also on our Facebook page. And so if you want to follow that, that's a great way of staying on top of, uh, of the issues. You know, Kobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's the best way for them to, to find you? I am at Stardenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And uh, we're hoping that sometime in 2013, uh, uh, Kobus is going to change his Twitter handle to be something easier for us yes, to follow. Oh no. And so I'm uh, stuck with this one. <laughs> you're stuck with this one. Well, I'm uh, I'm at eolander. That's e o l a n d e r. I'm tweeting almost every day on the latest headlines, about four to five times a day on the big stories coming through on China in Africa. You can also, of course, follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash China in uh, China Africa Project. Uh, we've got the blog at chinaafricaproject.com, which you know is being neglected a little bit right now but hopefully we'll add some new content to it but it's got a lot of great archive pieces on it uh, you can follow the podcast by subscribing on uh, on itunes you can listen on soundcloud you can find us on stitcher so we're kind of out there and of course if you've missed any past episodes or you want to listen to the show while you're on facebook just go ahead and click on that soundcloud link on facebook and you can find our podcast right there and listen to some past episodes so that'll do it for this edition of the china in africa podcast we'll be back again next sunday for another edition of the show. Until then, thanks so much for listening.